said earlier, we are starting our series in the letter of, uh, from James. <clears throat> James, uh, the, the overarching message is that those who have been truly rescued will live out their faith practically in everyday life. Uh, we gave a title to this series called Everyday Faith. Um, there is also in James, there's this grand theme of wisdom uh, and I want to point this out because it's so prominent that uh, uh, theologians have actually recommended that James' letter be considered wisdom lit- literature in the same uh, category as the book of Proverbs. Lastly, I'd, I'd uh, like to point this out, um, that there is a pr- profound presence of Jewish conceptualizations and references as James' audience was Jewish believers. And... Um, I am no scholar in Jewish thought and Jewish literature, but um, I did get a, a good bit of reading in on a, some really solid um, commentary that, that brought out the Jewish themes I think are important to understanding what James is saying when he's saying it. Um, so pray for me because I don't have a huge background in that, but I think that there's some things in there, some rich meaning and some things, that, some clarity we can get to as we look at those. Um, before we get into the text, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word, for the wisdom that you give us through your word. Thank you for uh, that your word is not a, it's not a, um, uh, the Bible is not just an inanimate object. Uh, the, the word that we are engaging with when we read the Bible, it, it's living. It has life in it, and it gives us life, and we are set free by the truth um, that we uh, receive through it, Lord. So we just pray that you would set us free from lies of the enemy, lies of the world, and lies from our flesh as we get into uh, your word. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, as you are the one who guides us into the truth, I pray that you would minister. Uh, take this as your pulpit this morning. It really is yours, and this is your ministry. Work through uh, us as your vessels, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text is uh, James 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, that's the ones that John Ransom assigned to me. I am going to touch on verse 12 a little bit. Uh, Next week, uh, Brett Rail from Christ Bible Institute in Nagoya is going to be preaching, and verse 12 is, it's kind of his, but I have to touch on it today, and I told told Brett that I try not to walk all over his sermon, I try to respect those boundaries, but we do have to touch on it a little bit today. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, um, starting with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." So James introduces himself as a servant of Christ, and he addresses his letter to the Jews of the 12 tribes of Israel in the dispersion. First Peter also begins with an address uh, to uh, the dispersion. The dispersion, which is also sometimes referred to as the diaspora, is uh, a reference to the Jewish people who were scattered abroad to nations uh, outside of Israel, foreign nations. Um, they were scattered by invasions of Israel by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they never came back. Some of them came back, but not all of them came back. And they, they settled there in those foreign countries, and James is addressing his letter to them. And many of them became Christians, so James probably sees these Jewish Christians who have been sovereignly relocated throughout these foreign nations as the first fruits of a reviving work of God in the Jewish people. So he writes to them. He reminds them of their spiritual heritage as God's people. He gives them practical instruction on following Christ. And he points to the real future event when the true Israel, which now at this point includes non-Jewish believers, will be delivered from all oppression, will be delivered from all of these trials and gathered to Christ Jesus and no longer be sojourners in a foreign land. Because you and I, um, we're sojourners in a foreign land spiritually. This is not our eternal home. So moving on to verses two through four, James just jumps right into it. Uh, he seems like the kind of writer that doesn't spend too many words in the fluffy stuff. He spends one sentence on an introduction saying this is who I'm writing to. And then he's like, let's talk about trials. Second sentence, okay? Heavy subject straight away. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is not right if he writes when. The question is not, will trials come? But rather, what will we do with trials when they come? Melissa and I grew up in a, a church in Southern Illinois, uh, just a, a rural area of Southern Illinois. And our pastor, we'll see him in a couple of weeks when we head to the U.S. His name is Myron Kirk. And uh, spent, I think I spent 12 years in that church just uh, growing up in it. He would often say about trials, he would say, you're either in one, you're coming out of one, or you're about to go into one. This is the reality of living in a fallen world with Christ-rooted hope for a, for a perfect world to come. If you have faith in Christ and you're hoping for his kingdom to come, that faith is going to be tested on a regular basis. Peter also writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. Trials are part of the everyday stuff of life, of faith in Christ. If we're walking to follow Jesus, we're going to encounter trials all the time. Trials come in various kinds. I love the original meaning of this word various here. It means of different colors. And I don't know if James is being ironic because whenever I think of different colors, I think of rainbows and ice cream or cotton candy. I don't think of trials. I don't think of that, but he's like, you're gonna have trials and they're gonna be all different colors. Okay. Um, Various kinds of trials. There are trials that we bring on ourselves. There are trials that uh, we're just reaping what we sow. And those, those hurt. Um, those are not the trials that James is really getting to in this passage. He's not saying, take joy that whatever you sowed in the past when you were young and dumb, take joy, it's coming back to get you. He's not saying that. Those trials, our pastor in the U.S. would say, are the ones where you pray for crop failure. Yeah, we... In Southern Illinois, we practically grew up in cornfields, so this made sense to us. Um, he would say, you, would pr- you wanna pray for crop failure, kind of like when David, he, he messed up huge, and he, he prays that God would, would not give him the punishment he deserves and that, that his child would, would live, and he does so because maybe the Lord will have mercy. He's a good father. He's tender and gentle, and he may give mercy. So it's good to pray that we don't get exactly what we sowed in the past. That's okay to, to pray that. Um, and even whenever God does allow us to reap what we sow, this is not outside of his sovereign hand. This is not outside of his purposes. God is not like, well, you did that and that wasn't me and I'm not in control of that. I don't know. He's not saying that. Um, He is sovereign over it. He does have uh, things that he'll work in, in you even whenever he allows you to reap what you sow. He'll use it for his glory and for your good because he loves you. The kinds of trials that James is talking about here is the kind that we find ourselves in that are more related to our faith than our fallenness. They're, they're not as much related to, oh, I did this thing and it was, it was a big mistake and now I'm going through this trial. It was, it's more related to, he's talking about, you're gonna go through trials because of your faith, because you have faith. It's going to be because of that. The, uh, that's the kind of trials he's talking about here. If you look in verse 12, you will find the phrase, if you're looking at the ESV, you're gonna find the phrase, stood the test. Um, you'll find a variation of that if you, if you have a different translation. This phrase is translated from a Greek term that was used of testing metals for their genuineness. When we go through trials, the genuineness of our faith is tested None of us will be found to be perfect and have perfect faith in this life. But do we have real faith? Is it real? Or is it something that is a superficial display? Is it something that we fake in order to get our kids to go to church because we want them to grow up with good morals? Or is there something real there, a trust in Christ and a resting in him alone for rescue from sin? So trials test our faith. 
Now, going through a trial versus being tempted, what's the difference? On one level, I'm gonna say that there's, there's no difference. And on another level, there's a big difference. Here's what I mean by that. Why I say on one level that there's no difference is because the word for trial in verse two is the same word used in verse 13 for tempted. And they're both referring to the same thing happening to you, whether you call it a trial or a temptation. From your perspective, it's the same thing. You're going through it. Same thing being referred to in verse two and verse 13. However, on the other perspective, who is doing it is a big difference. Big difference. That's where we begin to distinguish them. Verse two is a noun form of trial and verse 13 is a verb form. So you might, you might be thinking, wow, John, who cares? I came here to hear the word of God and you're teaching me grammar. First of all, I'm from Southern Illinois, never qualified to teach you grammar, okay? Just <laughs> right off the bat. <clears throat> in a composition class in college, um, despite enjoying my writing, uh, my teacher, who is educated at Notre Dame, uh, said to me, she was looking at one of my papers and she said, she's reading, she's like, oh, that's wrong. Wait a second. You don't actually talk that way, do you? And I, I was like, no. I don't, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't talk that way. That was a typo. The whole paragraph was just one big typo. Um, this is not really about grammar, but the grammar is something that's keying us into something here. It's keying us into the nature of trials and how they go down. We, we're being told by James, this is how it goes down when you go through a trial. There's God who uses trials to test his children. We see this in many instances throughout scripture. He uses those trials to test his children. But verse 13 says, flat, flat out, he does not tempt his children. What's, what's the difference? The aim of temptation is destruction. When somebody is tempting, they are luring, they are enticing someone to fall, to fall into something not for their good, but for their destruction. Um, Jesus said that, that, uh, that Satan has come to kill and steal and destroy. And he uses temptation to destroy. He wants to destroy uh, families. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your relationship with your kids. He wants to destroy churches. And so he tempts. God does not tempt. He does not love evil and he is not tempted by it. And he doesn't tempt anybody with it. However, he does test. He does arrange it. So the verb in verse 13 is, is, is being used to refer to tempting. Satan comes in and tempts. God arranges for and allows for trials to come into your life. He doesn't come in and say, hey, look at this thing. Don't you want this thing? How about this? This looks really good. He doesn't do that. But he does have overarching purposes for trials in our lives that he uses for his glory and for our good. In every trial that we experience, we experience pressure, we experience suffering, we experience loss in some ways because of the evil intentions of people and of our spiritual enemy, Satan. 
But there is that overarching purpose of God that turns those works that are done with evil intent into experiences for our good. That's how, that's how sovereign and how powerful and how wise God is, is that he is able to transform those things. What others mean for evil, God means for good. Does that sound familiar to you? In the book of, um, uh, in, in the story of Joseph, I was gonna say the book of Joseph, and you're all gonna be like, this guy has no credibility. Um, in the story of Joseph, uh, we see him saying, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Different purposes in the same trial. We also see in Job where Satan is asking to tempt Job. He is allowed to by God sovereignly. He has to ask for permission. And God allows it. And God has a purpose in the whole story. And Job goes through brutal things. I hope nobody in this room ever has to go through what Job did. Um, and if you did, I'd understand if you wrote 50 chapters on it like he did. Um, but we see it vividly there in the book of Job that God allows these, these things to happen and for Job's faith to be tested. And he ends up better in his later state than he was before. And this is getting to where uh, we see why James says, count it all joy. James knew that trials are often taken as a sign of God's displeasure. They did this in Jesus's time and they still do it today. Our minds tend to sometimes fall into that, that unscriptural fallacy that, oh, they're going through that, they must be doing something wrong. They don't have God's blessing on them. That's why they're going through that trial. It's not scriptural. James says we go through trials when we're, because we're following Christ. And we go through trials because we have faith that that faith would be tested. And whenever he tests it, there's this connotation to that phrase stood the test in verse 12 of having a view towards approval. God is not testing you with an eye towards your destruction. He has an eye towards, I want them to receive approval. I want this to end with them receiving approval. I want the genuineness to come out and I want genuineness to be even worked in them through the trial if necessary. So we should not take trials as a sign of God's displeasure. Although we may reap what we sow at times, this is not, um, this is not a sign uh, proving that trials are because God is angry with us. Um, Jesus has taken upon himself the weight and the punishment of all of our sins. And God is not punishing us for our sins. He may make you reap what you, uh, what you sow for your good, though. We should consider it a joyous occurrence that a trial has come. We don't consider it joy what we're feeling during the trial necessarily. God is not asking us through James here to, to say, wow, this feels great. I'm just gonna keep a smile on my face the whole time we're in this trial because this is amazing. I wish that I could go, keep them coming, God. Next week, I want another one. That's not the joy that he's asking for and that he's saying we should do. But instead, 
not looking at the trial, but looking past the trial in faith, knowing that God's character is good, that he's a good father, and that he's going to use this to build your character, looking at the other side of this where God's designs culminate in the building up of your character and for his glory. James tells us to not just find, he doesn't say, hey, while you're going through it, to help you through it, find a little joy, find something that's, that's joy, you know, joyous about that trial. Some trials, probably most trials, there's nothing really good about it except what God is doing through it. And it's okay to admit that. They're not fun. Uh, they're not directly and immediately enjoyable. But he doesn't say find a little joy. He says count it all joy. And I'm gonna bring up my pastor in the U.S. one more time. I don't know why I was thinking of him so much this week, but he said, he, he'd always say, you know what all means in the Greek? All. That's what it means. So we're not mincing words here. We're not, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about all. God means all. In Romans 8, whenever uh, Paul is writing and he, says, he, he writes, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, you can count on it. It's all. And not one bit of suffering, not one second of trial in your life is wasted. He uses it all. And he wants us to, because he's using it all, he wants us to think about that and to take joy in it all. Not only um, are trials not directly and immediately enjoyable, but they also can cost you. They can cost us. Trials are not airsoft tournaments. Trials Trials can have things on the line, <laughs> excuse me, like our health, our hearts, our marriages, our relationships, our careers, all of that can be on the line in a trial. It can cost you. The world and, the, and your spiritual enemy are playing for real and they're aiming for your destruction. Sometimes God allows us to go through trials in which we suffer greatly. I was, I was really struck by a trial um, that I read about, <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, um, that I read about recently, the missionary John G. Patton. He was a missionary in the 1800s. <clears throat> I'm going to try to get this place right. What it's called in modern day, it's called Vanuatu. Uh, closest continent would be Australia. But back before, um, before missionaries went there, he went, and he went with his wife. His wife was pregnant in 1858. Three months after they got there, she gave birth to a baby boy. Tragically, 19 days later, she died of tropical fever. To add to it, two weeks later, the newborn followed her to the grave. And John, before, before the times this is before times where you could hop on a plane and go back home. With his own hands, alone, he buried them next to the house that they had built there on that island. And he slept on their graves at night to protect their bodies from the cannibals on the island. I cannot think of a greater trial that somebody could go through. I, can, I just can't think of it. It struck me so much. And... I bring this up because if you read his memoir, you see 
He, he recounts the way that his father and him departed and the way that his father discipled him. You see a family who loved Christ, loved Christ so much to go to this island nation to win them. And he stayed on that island four more years until an uprising among the tribes forced him to leave because they were trying to murder him. He left, he spent years raising money, he got married again, and he went back. It would take an incredible amount of the grace of God for me to do that. But he went back and they lived there for decades and they taught the word of God and they won the island to Christ through that. And though that trial was something that like I would never wish upon anybody and I pray that you all, my church family, I love you. I, I would never want any of you to go through anything even close to that. I wanna give you the hope today through that that God can use something as immense as that and he's with us. John, John later wrote, he said, if it were not for the presence and the peace of Christ that he gave to me, I would have surely died on those lonely graves. And he took joy in Christ and he was sustained by that through the trial. Trials can be costly and we suffer greatly. Don't think that God hates you if you start really suffering and it really starts costing you. But I do wanna encourage you with this. We're a church family and an important function of church families is that we bear up one another's burdens and that whenever people are going through trials, um, we don't wanna take away the trial. Or we don't wanna avoid trials, but we do want to help each other. We can speak wisdom into each other's lives. Sometimes the wisdom of God will come through us as, as we'll see here in a second. But I want to encourage you, ask questions. Some people have personalities like me and you have to pry and you have to pursue and you have to ask again and again because personalities like me, we find it hard to give up our pride and tell you what's going on, what's actually going on and what we're really going through and accept help. It's hard. It's really hard for me. But I just encourage you to pursue, pursue, ask questions, get past the superficial, hey, how's it going? I'm fine. You know you're always gonna get that response. You know you are. You're gonna have to ask more questions now. I encourage you, be the body. You're a bunch of wonderful people that God has invested and deposited his love and his wisdom and so many good things just pour it out on those people that are going through trials. It happens naturally. God has already pre been preparing you to help brothers and sisters through trials. There's some things that you know or that you've experienced that will unlock some peace for those who are going through trials. Going on to uh, verse five here, James starts talking about wisdom. Wisdom is a God-given and God-centered understanding of the practical issues of life. Now, remember whenever I said that James is a Jewish man and he's addressing his letter to Jewish believers and there's, there's a lot of Jewish thought and conceptualization in this letter. And um, in Jewish thought, there is actually an idea that there's earthly wisdom and there's heavenly wisdom. And that's why you see in chapter three, that we read before uh, we started today, uh, you see the reference to the wisdom that comes from above. Because there's, there's cleverness, 
There's, there's a wisdom that is earthly, that is of this world. And it's usually, in Jewish thought, it's usually um, in relation to deceiving people, exploiting people, and causing all kinds of works of darkness. But there is a wisdom from God. And it's, wisdom is basically handling life. It's knowing how to handle the affairs of life. In the context of trials, wisdom is understanding the nature and purpose of trials and knowing how to meet them victoriously. So one aspect of wisdom we already, talk, we already talked about, knowing the nature and the purpose of trials. That's part of wisdom in relation to trials. The other part how to meet trials victoriously is, is something that is as vast as life itself because we can all get ourselves into uh, or fall into the midst of trials that are, are of various colors and how to meet them victoriously is situation specific and it needs to be, that wisdom needs to be obtained from God, whether it be through the study of his word, through hearing the word of God preached, or in prayer, or from a brother and sister who speaks wisdom to you. We need wisdom from God. So James says, let him ask God. In the original language, it means let him continue to ask God. An ongoing asking. Trials are a regular occurrence. So asking God for wisdom should probably be a regular practice in our lives. A response to trial. For... The reason why we ask God is because we know he gives to all. He gives universally to all believers. He, he, makes it, he makes his wisdom universally available to all believers. How we ask makes a difference. We can ask in faith or in doubting. Now, in these verses on doubting, we may be seeing some of those Jewish conceptualizations on display and they diverge a little bit from the way that we would conceptualize doubt, possibly. Um, in college, I minored in philosophy just because I like it. I didn't ever think that I was going to be a philosopher or have a job uh, as a philosopher, but I liked it. And we read, by far, mostly Western philosophers. And the way that we think is this, this, therefore this, 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 therefore this. They're called syllogisms. And we reason that way. Uh, one philosopher that I, that I, that I read his works, uh, his name was Benedict Spinoza. And he tried to come up with a philosophy that would explain all of life and everything by taking the way that, if you ever, y'all probably took geometry, you weren't from Southern Illinois, so you probably took geometry. And geometry builds these postulates. They're like airtight, logical, build this and then this and because of this and because of this. And he tried to build a whole philosophy that way to just get it right. Um, but you can't capture wisdom in one narrow way of thinking. Um, and in Jewish thought, um, they embrace a lot of times in writings, more ambiguity than maybe we're comfortable with. We, we like specificity. It might look to them like splitting hairs because James is not talking about, um, whenever he talks about doubt, if we, look at these, if we look at these verses here, he says, no doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I read it in that tone because it may come off to you that way. It can, whenever I read it through the framework of my understanding and the way I read things, I'm like, this word plus this word means this. And if I take it that way, I'm like, wow, this is kind of confusing here because I'm pretty sure that there's no Christian on earth that never has a doubt. And if that is so... If that is so, therefore, therefore, I'm like, so I had a doubt. Now I'm a double-minded man. I'm unstable in all my ways. Is that what he's saying? So James is writing not the way that I'm receiving that. The way he is writing, what's helpful to look at is that he's, he's painting a picture of a type of person. And he's saying, we shouldn't doubt. And doubting if, we, if doubting characterizes, if it's, the, if it's the thing that characterizes our life, then we are the wavering, hesitant, torn between trusting God and torn between trusting ourselves or the world. And that person right there is unstable. Doubting is, if our lives are characterized by that, we... we uh, we're that kind of person, we're unstable. And he uses the picture of a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's a picture of instability and constant change. Now, again, I would read this and if I were not reading this from James's point of view and what he's trying to say, I would be like, so if I have a doubt, if a, if a doubtful thought or a doubtful feeling arises in me, then I'm just, I'm constantly changing and I'm, I'm double-minded immediately like that. No, there's, there's a spectrum. And I'm, as we navigate this and we look at it from our perspective, there's obviously a spectrum, but James isn't talking about it. He could say, you know, guys, doubt is something that we'll encounter and there's a way that we approach that, but don't be like this. That's not how he presents it. He just, said, he just presents a type, a character. And he's like, that kind of person is not going to receive wisdom from God. Dr. Alistair McGrath writes, doubt is natural within faith. It comes about because of our human weakness and frailty. Doubtful thoughts and feelings within a person can lead to being double-minded. It can lead to that kind of double-minded state that James is referring to. If we fail to allow our faith to grow, we can find ourselves there. Another thing that we can do is if we become preoccupied with our doubts, where we are not looking to Christ, but continually looking inward and letting ourselves become dominated by our doubts, we will de develop a double-minded self with divided loyalties that God will not honor. If I sit on this stool right now, I'm, I'm picking up my feet off the ground and right there, I just demonstrated to you, I'm trusting this stool to hold up my weight. I'm trusting it. You know, because I'm demonstrating it right now, you can see it. I'm not just saying it. If I was saying, I trust a stool and I'm holding on to a bar up here, 
you, you wouldn't know whether you could believe me or not. You're like, I don't know if, you're trust, if you really trust the stool because you're not hanging on to it and you're not putting your full weight on it. You just say, I don't know yet because you're hanging on to something. If we trust God, we'll let go of our trust in the world and our trust in our natural abilities and our own craftiness and ways, <laughs> excuse me, to get out of trials and we'll rest in Christ alone. Faith is a settled trust and confidence in God that is based on his character and on his revealed promises in scripture. That is faith, a settledness. Now our faith is not perfect and it won't be perfect in this life. We will continually long for that absolute level of confidence and being perfectly settled. And that actually should be encouraging if you have that longing. That will be a mark of genuine faith is to want that faith to be total and perfect and complete. You're not gonna be like, well, this, this, is, this is enough. I'm really comfortable like this. This works for me. This is, I can roll with this. But if you're, if you're saying, Lord, I know that I have lingering doubts and I have I have things that prevent me from fully being settled and I want to fully trust you. It's a mark of genuine faith to long for that and to pray for it and to do what you have to do by the means of grace and by faith to attain that. That's a mark of genuine faith. A faith that is real and a faith that is growing and has a measure of confidence and settled trust in God is different than the life of divided loyalties. Moving on to verses nine, excuse me, nine through 11. Reading commentary on verses nine through 11 is really funny because really smart people don't know what to do with it. <laughs> you read it and there's like, we don't know why James threw this in here. Um, but it seems like this, and it like maybe this or this, and different ones are saying different things, and they're just grappling with it. But I, I, read, um, I read some commentary that dug really deep into um, the Jewish culture and where, they, where uh, Jewish thought was at the time of, of James. It was, it was the most revealing to me because it's like, James, you were talking about trials and then, you know, wisdom for trials and asking for God, uh, wisdom. And then all of a sudden, you're just talking about the lowly and the rich. Like, and then in and verse 12, he comes back to trials. And it's like, okay, what do we do with this? I think some clarity and also richness of meaning can be found through a few points. First is, like I said, James is writing in this Jewish tradition that had developed terms, uh, they had developed the terms lowly and rich as meaning more than economic and social statuses. It was more than, whenever they said lowly, they didn't mean, just mean poor and powerless. And when they said rich, they didn't just mean uh, having lots of money and being powerful. But instead, they had taken on more meaning to become religious references, shorthand religious references. Now, to me and you, this means... This means poor and powerless and rich and powerful. That's what it means to us because we didn't, we didn't grow up in the same tradition. So when James is like the lowly and the rich, we're not like, boom, gotcha. Pictures just came to mind. But for James's readers, they came to mind. 
They, know, they knew what he was talking about whenever he said the lowly and the rich, and they knew the religious connotations to that. Because whenever I'm reading this, again, I'm, an, <laughs> I'm a Gentile, I'm a foreigner trying to read this and, and understand it through my Western syllogistic thinking, and I'm like, okay, the lowly brother is going to be exalted, the rich it's going to be humiliated. It doesn't look like it's going to end well for the rich people at all. It just like kind of ends with him like fading away, fade out in the black. He's done. Um, is James saying here that all the lowly, the poor and the powerless, all of them are going to be saved? All of them are going to be exalted? And all just because they have money, just because they have maybe power that just by virtue of that, that they're going to be humiliated? James, if James was here, he'd be like, John, you are totally missing the point. I'm not talking about that. I'm not trying to say that every poor and powerless person is necessarily humble and resting in Christ. You can be poor and powerless and you can be at the same time proud and self-reliant. You can be rich and powerful and rest in God and, and, and be humble. But he's bringing these up because he knew the types of people that his readers would, would know what he's talking about. He, they would know that, oh, he's talking about the lowly, the humble brother who is resting in God for salvation alone. And when he's talking about the rich, he's not just talking about somebody who has money, like that simple fact. He's talking about, he's talking about the ones who exploit people and the ones who who, who seek honor from what is not rightfully theirs, who are arrogant and ruthless in their pursuit of power and status and wealth, who indulge in a luxurious way of life while totally neglecting the needy. That's, they knew he was talking about that and they weren't going, needing to split hairs with him. To boast in your own hum humiliation is an ironic statement. There isn't going to be anything that people who become, who become rich and powerful in a way that exploits people and oppresses the poor and the needy and, and, and doesn't place any hope in God, there isn't a good end. It says, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And this is, is something where, where uh, James actually touches on eschatology. He's he starts pointing towards a, a uh, real future event when Christ returns and there will be a great reversal. And it harkens back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who, uh, whenever uh, you are persecuted, um, it harkens back to that because Jesus would say they will inherit the earth. He didn't say they would inherit right now, that they would become right now the rich and powerful. But he's saying, when I return, I'm gonna reverse things. And those who place their trust in me and those who humbly rested in me for salvation, they're gonna be exalted. As Jesus said, those who humble themselves will be lifted up. Those who uh, lift themselves up will be brought low. And I love how James touches on eschatology in the end times because he's like, John is totally different. John's like, boom, look at this. Revelation, this is like all of this cryptic stuff and everything. Like 
try to figure that out. James is just like, it's gonna be like this. Okay, we're talking about doubting. It's just really everyday stuff, end times right in there. Like the sun rising, the dawn of Christ's reign will come and all of the superficial beauty that the world worshiped and wanted to be and wanted to own and adored, that the unbelieving, rich and powerful and famous had will come to an end. It will come to a sudden end. And this brings us back full circle to James' statement in verse two, to count it all joy when we, when we encounter trials of various kinds. We look forward to steadfastness being produced in us. We look forward also to the final end of all suffering, the final end of all these trials. We won't always have trials, but we're gonna have trials now. We look forward to justice, perfect justice being brought to this earth and all of the inequality and all of the unfairness and all of the oppression being taken away by King Jesus and the true King Jesus receiving the reward of his suffering. The trials and the sufferings of this life are preparing us for that time. And as our character is forged in trials, we will be prepared and we will be ready to worship him. And we will appreciate his true beauty and we will be ready to, uh, uh, to give him the worship that he deserves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom in your word and we thank you for, um, we thank you for trials. Although we don't enjoy them, we, uh, we're not uh, a people who would, who would foolishly say, you know, just throw them at us, Lord. Just, just give it to us. Because we not, we're not confident in ourselves. We're confident, though, in you. And that if you're giving it to us, we know that it will turn out well because you have good designs. You're working all things together for our good. And we know that if you're giving it to us, it is a good gift. We know that trials are some of those good gifts that you give to us, Lord. We pray that as we go through them, that different people in the family would become aware and that they'd ask questions, the right questions, find out the need to find out how they can bear up one another's burdens. Lord, I pray that you would use this church family <laughs> to bear up one another's burdens, that, that uh, no brother or sister would, would stumble and fall, that no brother or sister would, would be overwhelmed and crushed by a trial but that we'd, we'd help them lift it up together, Lord. And let this not be just words in a prayer. Let it be something that is cultivated in our MCs and in the life of our church. Lord, I need you to do it because I can preach it, but I can't, I can't work those things. I can't work miracles in people's hearts and I can't work a miracle in my own heart that that would be created and that would be done. But I do ask right now that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would work inside our hearts, work in our hearts that we would uh, that we would bear what, up one another's burdens, that we would, as we go through trials, that we'd respond not with complaining or fear or anger, that we'd respond in asking you for wisdom and we count it all joy. And we look in faith to the other side of it. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us hope. We didn't deserve it. You gave it to us and you paid the full price of giving it to us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.